All right, so this could maybe sound a little trite, but I don't mean it as such. Um, I think it's maybe fitting. It's a brief introduction. If it, it is silly, then at least it's brief. Um, so if Christianity had a mascot, what would it be? You don't have to call it any answers, but isn't it interesting? So I'll pick on Christian schools. I'm not picking on Christian schools. I'll just choose Christian schools to address here. How many schools have adopted the name Crusader over the last, I don't know, 75 years? It's an interesting mascot to choose. So three local Christian schools have the following mascots, and I'm not indicting anybody because ours is among the three that our kids go to. The Lions, the Titans, and the Warriors. Okay, so I don't know if when those mascots were being decided upon, Sam, can you speak to Red Lion? Was there any talk of the Red Lion lambs? No, okay. I, I can speak to the fact that I don't think there was any chance that we were going to go with the Delaware Valley toddlers <laughs> over Titans. And I don't know if there's anybody here with Wilmington Christian that would know from the beginning. Mean, I know there's Wilmington Christian people, but I don't know if there's anybody here that was around, you know, Wilmington Christian weaklings. I don't know if anybody threw that out on the table when they were trying to decide the mascot. Um, so anyway, keep that in mind here as we go along. It's just, huh, lions, titans, and warriors. All right. Mark 10, 13 to 31. Nothing against any of those schools. And yeah, anyway, I could qualify it to death. Not worth it. Here we go. Point number one. Having nothing and having it all, verses 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. It's a really strong word. And said to them, like, like this got his blood pressure up. Said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, so they must have been quite young. Because, I mean, I, I could probably put Ben on my, lap, on my lap, but, you know, taking him in my arms now at 10 and however many pounds, okay? So they must have been pretty young. And he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Maybe he was saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine on you and be gracious to you, little one. And lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. So the people bringing their little ones, children, babies, that he might bless them. Instead of welcoming this, Jesus' disciples stiff-arm it. They rebuke the parents bringing their little ones to Jesus. And the word for rebuke is also a strong word. It was used in Mark already when Jesus rebuked unclean spirits. When Peter tried to rebuke Jesus, remember, because of the prediction of his suffering at the cross, and Peter's like, wait, messiahs aren't supposed to suffer and die. And then Jesus rebukes, same word, Peter in reply and said, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. So 
pretty clear the same thing is going on here. The disciples, in rebuking the parents, blocking the way for these little children to come to Jesus, they have in mind the things, the value system of the world, not the value system of the kingdom, kingdom of God. So ancient Hellenistic society did not value children like we do today. Certainly they had none of the sentimentality okay, toward children that we do today. So apparently there's a papyrus from Alexandria dated June 17th, 1 BC. And it contains a letter of instruction from a husband to his wife. He must have been away for some reason on business or whatever, and he presumed that she had just given birth, and he writes, if it was a male child, let it live. If it was a female, cast it out. So maybe you've heard of the practice of exposing children, like they would just leave children out to die. And actually children, uh, Christians in the first century, after Jesus and beyond, were, they distinguished themselves from society because they would not expose their children. But that's the world in which this is happening, okay? So the ones that the society thought were unimportant, not worth Jesus' time, Jesus didn't think so. He welcomed them. And he didn't want his disciples to get in the way of that. Now, several things we need to see in these verses, take note of before we move on. So look at the end of verses, verse 14 um, and verse 15. It says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So we have to ask, we've got to make sure we understand, like, what is it about children that makes them an example of those who enter the kingdom? Is it their innocence? Is it their sincerity? No. The issue is not the characteristics that they have. It's more a matter of what they don't have. Okay, they are helpless. So I have a little video illustration for you all here. Compliments of my wife's visit to the Whartons last night. So, cue the video. Oh, what are you eating, man? (laughs) You're eating a whole chicken leg, dude. Holy cow! Oh! Mmm! Say, mmm! Mmm! What do you think? Is it good? Mmm! All right, thank you, Bo. So he's obviously doing pretty well. But he's doing pretty well because he got placed in that high chair and was given you know, half a chicken, and, <laughs> but imagine, so Bo's one, imagine, God forbid, that Brett and Brady left him outside on his own to fend for himself for a few days. How, did, how, would, he, how would he do? So James Edwards, our f- favorite commentator friend here, um, going to quote him three times again this week. Three times last week, three times this week. Maybe it'll become a pattern. I don't know. Um, He says it well, if you want to follow along here. We are not innocent and eager, but slow, disbelieving, and cowardly. In this story, children are not blessed for their virtues, but for what they lack. They come only as they are, small, powerless, without sophistication, to receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, 
no clout, no claims. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring, and whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the, sheer, on the basis of sheer neediness rather than any merit inherent in him or herself. Little children are paradigmatic disciples for only empty hands can be filled. The kingdom can only be given. And so the kingdom can only be received. It can't be bought or earned or merited. I love the old song that uh, Matthew Smith and Indelible Grace redid, Come Ye Sinners. We've sung it a number of times here. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. You don't need to get cleaned up to take a bath. You need to come to Jesus and he will clean you up. He will provide the fitness, the righteousness, right? All we come with is filthy rags. All we come with is hands full of sin. It's the only thing we bring to the table. And Jesus hung on the cross and died for our sins. He takes our sins so that he can give us his righteousness. All the fitness he requires is to feel our need of him. We give him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. He washes us clean. All we have to do is repent ugh, and believe. Trust in Jesus as Savior. And he provides all the fitness that he requires. So the kingdom can only be received. I mean, just imagine orphan Annie trying to buy her way into Daddy Warbucks' family. I mean, isn't that laughable? She's got nothing to offer. I mean, that's not totally true. I know, for those of you that are trying to pick apart the metaphor, because he's lacking some things, right? So this isn't, God doesn't have any lack, okay? So don't press the metaphor too far, but she has nothing to bring to the table. She's helpless. Adoption is a gift. So you can't imagine Orphan Annie either trying to buy her way in or pay it off once she's become Daddy Warbucks' child. You know, imagine Orphan Annie with her Excel sheet and her amortization schedule. Like, give me a break. Are you kidding? Everything that she's got is because of being united to Daddy Warbucks. So the only ones who enter the kingdom are those who in childlike faith recognize that nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling, right? The only thing we bring is our sin. And Jesus takes that and gives us his righteousness, forgiveness, cleansing, righteousness, adoption, everything in Christ. Or, again, let's stick with the Wharton crew. Imagine Bo or maybe the older Wharton boys how does a child receive gifts at Christmas? And I mean, especially the ones that they really want. You know, they don't like carefully unwrap the paper and they're like, oh, uh, oh, oh, you shouldn't have. Wow, this is too much. Can I give you something for this? Like, can I just chip in? I mean, I insist. No, it's, we laugh. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such 
belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Do you note that word belongs in verse 14? Do you see that? You know what that means? Those who enter the kingdom own the kingdom. It belongs to them. Like, that would be a good thing for that to sink in. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or how about Luke 12, 32? Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's yours. It belongs to you. If you are one of God's children, brother or sister in Christ, if you are one of God's, well, if you're a brother or sister in Christ, you are one of God's children, okay, then you are an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ. Everything belongs to you. Like, what if that really sinks in? I need that to sink in. Don't we need that to sink in? That's what enables radical generosity and also radical freedom from material things. Okay, remember Hebrews 10, 34? These people were suffering. Um, Some of them were thrown in prison. And then if you identified with somebody in prison to bring them help, like provision, because they weren't going to get three squares a day in prison, they're only going to get what you take them. So it was risky because you might end up in prison too. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How in the world could you do that? Only if you know that you have a better possession and an abiding one that can't be taken away. So in other words, those who know that they have nothing to offer, nothing to bring, who come to Jesus in faith, who cling simply to the cross, to Christ, they actually have everything. And if that's you, you have everything. So ask yourself, I need to ask myself, am I in touch with my neediness and helplessness? Am I poor in spirit? Or have I allowed myself to become middle class in spirit? We think a little too highly of ourselves and what we have to offer God. And, and you know, when we suffer, we kind of think like, hey, I mean, come on. I've been paying my taxes for a long time as a Christian in the, city, in the kingdom. So I deserve, like, throw me a bone here, God. I deserve a good life. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me, thinking too highly of myself and lead me in the way everlasting. But don't just show me reality about my neediness. Also show me reality about what's mine in Christ, what belongs to me. We have Christ. We have the kingdom. Well, if this first point, verses 13 to 16, is all about having nothing but really having it all, then verses 17 to 22, second point, is the other way around. Having it all, but really having nothing. Start in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, 
good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So this guy came to Jesus. He called him good teacher. He wanted to inherit eternal life. He's eager and earnest, right? I mean, he's seemingly humble. He's kneeling. But Jesus knows this man better than he knows himself. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That can kind of throw you off, right? I mean, uh, Jesus, aren't you God in the flesh, like Emmanuel? Why did you say this? So it's hard to know for sure why Jesus responds this way. It's possible that this man was flattering Jesus by calling him good teacher. It was not common to call a rabbi good because rabbis were afraid, like only God is good was kind of the common sense idea and for them to call themselves good they feared being blasphemous with that so it's possible that he was flattering him um, either way it's or no matter what's actually at, at work here I think what we can say is that Jesus's reply is aimed at challenging his framework for goodness okay so he thinks that Jesus is obviously just a man but a good man and a teacher, a good teacher. And I think as we read along, we'll see that he thinks he is a good man seeking to inherit eternal life. So he, a good man, will come to Jesus, a good man, good teacher, to see if he's missing anything. But his real condition, his real need is quite different than he realizes. Because again, his framework for goodness is out of whack. Um, so, for now, though, Jesus answers like a typical Jewish rabbi. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. And then this next one, do not defraud, is either like an application or an extension of the eighth and ninth commandments, don't bear false witness and don't steal. Or it may be like a concrete kind of identifiable variation on do not covet. You can't really tell if someone's coveting, right? But if you defraud someone, it's because you're coveting, coveting. So anyway, in case you wonder why that one's in there like this. And then he puts the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother there at the end. And just like, you know, good Old Testament summary, do this and live. And the man replies to Jesus, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. I mean, we might just scoff, but I think we need to realize I don't think he means at all that he thinks he's sinlessly perfect, but he's raised in a context where scrupulous obedience to the law is admired, right? So this man had been careful to keep the commandments from the time of his bar mitzvah, from my youth. So, I mean, just think of Paul's description, remember in Philippians 3, um, he's talking about how he was this zealous Jew and Pharisee and prior to his encounter with, with Jesus on the Damascus Road, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So, I mean, the rabbis spoke seriously of people who kept the whole law from A to Z. Okay, so again, if you're thinking behavior, can you go that time without killing someone? Sure. Committing adultery? Sure. Stealing? Sure. Bearing falsehood? So do you see, like, I've kept this from my youth. Like, what else do I need to do? And Jesus said, verse 21, I'm sorry, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. Doesn't say, 
annoyed by him. Doesn't say disgusted with him, fed up with him. He doesn't like wink at the disciples and whisper, watch this, you know, like I'm gonna gotcha. This isn't a gotcha moment aimed at cutting this guy down at the knees. I mean, Jesus is regular, gracious toward hypocrites and the proud and the self-righteous and here he's gracious with this man too. But he's also gonna tell him the truth and it's a hard word for him, one that he's not willing to accept. So he said to him, you lack one thing. Now, think about this man saying, good teacher, and he's, I've kept all these things. Like, is there anything I'm missing? What's he probably thinking? A little tweak here or there. Something to add to his list. You lack one thing. Can you imagine a smile spreading across his face? Like, I can do one more thing. And then Jesus says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And his face falls. He is shocked. This word for disheartened could be translated shocked or appalled. It's also translated, you know, in one place to kind of refer to ominous storm clouds kind of coming in over the sky. So he goes away sorrowful because he had great possessions. So now we probably see, I mean, when we first read this from top to bottom, you're like, how does this all fit together, right? But do you see how this ties so directly on the heels of 13 to 16? This is a striking contrast to the children in verses 13 to 16. Here's a man who is not helpless and needy, not like a child, and it keeps him from the kingdom. He has great possessions, he's got social status, or to use the words of James Edwards, he's got credits, clout, and claims. Edwards again here, I'll quote him again. Number two, his enviable assets proved a greater liability in inheriting eternal life than do the deficits of the little children in the previous story, for they embody the essence of the kingdom of God, whereas he turns away from it. That's well said. So the man went away grieved because money was really his functional God and Savior. It was his source of identity. So to lose his money would have been to lose his life. Exactly. Just two chapters ago, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever would save his life. And if your money is your life, then you're going to be in this situation. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Only by losing his life could he gain his soul. And that goes not only for money, but for any God competition any idol, any functional savior that keeps us from recognizing our, our need and our helplessness. So Tim Keller shows how this dynamic can work in our hearts with things other than wealth in his book, King's Cross, which is on the Gospel of Mark. We may be using our good things to deal with the imperfections that no one else can see. We may be incessantly trying to turn material wealth into a spiritual treasure to deal with that inner sense of poverty. 
We may be trying to turn physical beauty into spiritual beauty to deal with that inner sense of deformity. We also may be using our good things to feel superior to others or to get them to do the things we want them to do. Most of all, we may point to our good things, our achievements and our attainments, and say to God, look at what I've accomplished. You owe it to me to answer my prayers. We may use our good things to get control of God and other people. And so we've got to forsake all of that and follow Jesus. But instead, the rich man forsook Jesus. He walked away from him. And in so doing, forsook the kingdom. So he viewed his material wealth too highly, his earthly treasure, and he viewed kingdom treasure, knowing Christ, following Christ, too cheaply. He viewed his moral worth too highly, and he viewed his spiritual need too lowly. He had it all, but he had nothing. He lacked true treasure. All he had was earthly possessions. So Jesus is saying, I mean, he was saying more than imagine, but just for the sake of the point, I think you'll understand this. I want you to imagine your life without money or whatever else might compete with Jesus. All you have is the kingdom, treasure in heaven, and me. Is that enough? Like, is it worth it? Am I worth it? And that's the question for us as well. Look again at verse 21. I think we need to answer this question. You lack one thing, and then Jesus says, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. How many is that? Is that like five things, four things, three things? How's that one thing? Well, let me ask kind of a related question. Are repentance and faith one thing or two? Can you do one without the other? They're two sides of the same coin. And so here, Jesus is saying, sell, empty your hands of what you're trusting in and follow, trust in me to fill you with true treasure. Tails, heads, same coin. Repent of your belief in your own merit, your worship of money, and trust and follow me. Jesus is saying, empty your hands and let me fill them. So there's a pastor named, this is a crazy name, Jaunty Alcock. Um, pastor in central London, he wrote an article back in 2019. Whole thing's worth reading, but just quote one little section here. I think this is a helpful perspective on the passage. So he writes this, when we hear go sell everything you have and give to the poor, we can quickly react. Of course he doesn't mean I should do that. That would be ridiculous and impractical. He was only talking to that man. He just means I should be more generous. Yes, I think I can manage to be a bit more generous. I will try and give a bit more money this week. Great, well done me. And that's precisely the problem. We think we can do it. We find a solution to the problem of obeying the commands, but we aren't obeying him at all. Instead, stop and feel the weight of the commands Jesus gives. Feel the way money holds power over your heart. Let Jesus' challenge expose you. Every command found in the pages of scripture will have that effect if you stop and listen. 
No, it doesn't feel comfortable. No, it doesn't give you warm fuzzies about how great you are. But it is there in that place of weakness that you will truly learn to whisper those two little words. I can't. And that admission honors God more than you will ever know. It's the first step on the road to joyful, deep, and satisfying obedience. I am fully yours. I am empty-handed. You are the one with the resources. I can't, like, help. And then you can obey in the strength that God supplies, not just, yeah, I can do that and add it to my list. So that man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, sell and give. But the deepest answer to this man's question, the most focused answer to the man's question is, follow me. Come and follow me. Get rid of anything that would get in the way and come and follow me. To have Jesus is to have the kingdom, to have eternal life. That's what this man needs. That's what we need. That's what he lacked it's heaven to know Jesus. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven, being a part of the kingdom, is knowing God through Christ. So John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Heaven's not about the streets of gold. It's about the God of heaven. So the kingdom belongs to those who are poor in spirit, who know they have nothing to offer God and thus know their need of a savior. So this man has everything, and yet because he doesn't know his need, he lacks the most important thing. If only he empties his hands and becomes like a helpless child, clinging to Jesus and following him, then he would have everything, right? Which again, shouldn't surprise us because we've already read, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul back in Mark 8? Or remember the parable of the soils, you know, among the thorns? What is one of the dangers? The deceitfulness of riches choking out the word. So this shouldn't surprise us the way this all went down with this rich man. But it sure surprised the disciples because they were pretty impressed with this guy. They really wanted him to be a member at their church. So they're shocked at Jesus' response. So point number three, how difficult, verses 23 to 27. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So first off, if you've ever heard that explanation, you know, with a camel through the eye of the needle refers to a certain kind of gate, you know, called the eye of the needle. And so camels had to offload their, their burdens and then kneel down in order to get through the gate, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so that meaning is we need to be humble in order to enter the kingdom. Sorry, that didn't show up till the ninth century, okay? So forget that one, even though, of course, we should be humble and we need to be childlike to enter the kingdom. So what does this mean? The camel was the largest animal walking on Palestinian sand or soil or dirt, whatever. So the equation is the largest animal, the smallest opening equals impossible. Okay? So we have sayings like this, right? One of my high school teachers, for some reason I remember this. One of the few things I remember maybe from my high school educational experience. Um, this teacher would say of things that were impossible or highly, highly improbable, 
It has a snowball's chance on a hot day in a frying pan in Tahiti. In other words, no chance. Okay. Um, so how difficult is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom? It's impossible. Only the poor in spirit enter the kingdom. You cannot earn by achieve entrance. Salvation is beyond us. We cannot merit it. All of our homemade, do-it-yourself righteousness, all those attempts are futile. So look at how the disciples respond. Verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? So, I mean, the disciples are comparing themselves to this guy who's meticulously kept the law and he's rich, so obviously God's favor's on him. Common viewpoint at the time. So they wonder, like, who can be saved? So what's happening here is just like Jesus' statement to the rich man, one thing you lack, showed the rich man what he really needed, this statement to the disciples is showing the disciples what they need. Who can be saved? Well, if we're talking about salvation by your own merits or law-keeping, no one. Absolutely impossible. And they're just, they need new categories. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 27, he goes on. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. It's impossible for us. It's entirely possible for God. Even for you. Even for me. Nobody beyond the reach of his grace. So this dialogue drives the disciples to hopelessness and futility. Then who can be saved? The door's closed. There's no way in. But that's actually what opens the door to salvation. Exactly. You can't. But God can. The human self-salvation project is futile. Human effort will get you nowhere. But this is where we discover our need and God's saving grace. Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So we are needy, helpless sinners. It is impossible for us to enter the kingdom, to inherit eternal life by our own efforts. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus is a better savior than you and I are sinners. Hallelujah. Full stop in a sense, but here in the context, Jesus is yet to die and rise again. The disciples are still perplexed, so Peter speaks up for them in response. Point number four, loss and gain, verses 28 to 30. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Is there, like, it's kind of hard to know exactly what was going on in Peter's head? Is this like maybe some self-congratulation? Well, we've left everything. Or is it desperation? Like, well, well we've left everything, so like, is, is there hope for us? Not quite sure. But you can see how it follows on the heels of the impossibility, you know? Like, you've got to sell everything. Well, well we've left everything. Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers lands or children and lands 
with persecutions, you will suffer for following me, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Peter, what about our sacrifices? We've left everything. Does that mean we're going to inherit eternal life? So he's pleading for affirmation in the face of these impossible standards. You know, it's impossible with man. Jesus doesn't explain everything. You know, he hasn't died yet, risen from the grave. Like, there's lots of misunderstanding still with the disciples, but he does make one central point. Yes, there's real cost to following Jesus, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus with persecutions. Things that we give up, things that we sacrifice, we deny ourselves, etc. But don't think of following Jesus only or even primarily in terms of sacrifice, cost, and loss. The sacrifices we are called to are nothing compared with the blessings and glories for eternity and now, okay? Which is why David Livingston, let me just quote a few people here, pioneering missionary doctor of the interior of Africa, famously said, I never made a sacrifice. He gave his whole life, risked his life, pressing into the interior of Africa to bring the gospel. So he writes this, for my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Or Jim Elliot mentioned it before back in chapter eight. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or Jesus himself, Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Ouch. (laughs) All that he has and buys that field. Do you see the difference? Like this guy didn't see it. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, go sell all that you have give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And he went, that's not a good deal. I'm out. But in Matthew 13, he saw the value of that treasure far outstripped what your estate was worth, and you gladly sell it all. One has eyes to see the value, the other one doesn't see it, blinded to it. Give us eyes to see the value so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But listen, so that's the hereafter, right? But Jesus also says in this context, the gains in this life for following him, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands. What does that mean? Well, we could probably spend more time on this, but we need to be brief. Listen. You can move to Florida or New Mexico or Indonesia or England or Chile or chances are like, I mean, anywhere just about, although there's unreached peoples and I understand all that, but you will find family there. How many of you have experienced this in another country? 
Only four? Okay, just slow to raise your hand. Okay, there's more. So I know for me, Israel, Armenia, England, and we could probably name, you know, a bunch of countries if we took the time, or states. I bet we'd have the whole 50 states covered if we said, do you have believing friends in other states that, you know, you would connect with and have fellowship with if you moved there or needed to be, be there for three months or whatever? We probably have the 50 states covered. So that's out there, but also it's right here, and we need to look around and receive this. Like in this church. So are you plugging in, taking advantage of what is here for you? Sometimes people are frustrated and lonely and complaining, but they're not plugging in, taking advantage of the blessings of the gospel that are right here. And not only do we need to receive this humbly, but also we need to provide this. Isn't this an implication of this text? As Rosaria Butterfield says, the gospel comes with a house key. All right, bottom line, in terms of cost, benefit, true profit and loss, there is nothing more valuable than the kingdom. There is no one more valuable than the king in this life and in the life to come. So if you follow the king and have the kingdom, anything that you leave behind is nothing in comparison. And let's make sure that the values of the kingdom shape our values rather than the world shaping our values, which is why Jesus ends, it's like bookends, with the childlike faith thing, but many who are first will be last. Like everybody would have thought that the rich man was first, but actually he was last. So disciples, take a lesson from the little child. And us, brothers and sisters, disciples, let's take a lesson. I'll, quote, I'll, I'll end with this James Edwards quote and then we'll transition to the table here. So the kingdom of God topples our cherished priorities and demands of disciples new ones, new priorities. It takes from those who follow Jesus things they would keep and gives to them things they could not imagine. Those who take their stand on their riches, whatever they be, will have nothing to stand on. Those who give up everything, not only possessions, but even people and places, indeed their own lives, to follow Jesus, will not simply be compensated for their sacrifices, but satiated a hundred times over with the same. And in the world to come, eternal life. Satiated a hundred times over. That is some grace to feed on right now. All of this that's promised as we come to the table, if you have repented, trusted in Jesus, you come to the table, and what do you need? We need to reflect on how sometimes maybe we've lived as middle class in spirit. Oh, God, forgive me, cleanse me of that. And as a result of it, I've looked down on other people and there's, I've sinned against others, like cleanse me from this sin, help me to realize who I am and who you are. 
So we need to examine our hearts and repent of our sin and trust in Jesus and be recalibrated to this posture of childlike humility and dependence and helplessness. But then also we feed on the grace that is ours. We are heirs with Christ. All of these blessings are ours. And we need to be reminded of what is ours and satisfied. Would you satisfy me with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in you all my days? So let's take a few moments as, let's see, where's Brian's coming up? Um, he'll play quietly as we reflect. If you haven't had a chance to grab the elements, you can grab them on the little tables in the back and take some time to reflect um, to prepare your heart so that we can feed on the grace that is ours in Christ. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't yet um, gone public with that faith in Christ through baptism, just it's okay to let the elements, just to leave them back there. Um, but don't let this moment pass to reflect on what Christ offers you in the gospel. And if you have questions and want to talk to somebody, I'd certainly be happy to talk to you. Um, maybe somebody near you would also be happy to talk to you as well and answer any questions. So let's pray that the Lord would shine the light on our hearts where he needs to and do his work and feed us on his grace. So Lord, we thank you for this passage. Would you please shine the light of your word and your spirit in our hearts and show us where we are depending on the wrong things and help us to just empty our hands at your feet and come needy and helpless like we truly are. And would you please fill us, fill us with your grace, with your promises, feed us on the grace that's ours in Christ. In Jesus' name.